So we turn to chapter 8 of Job to ask the question, how will your house stand? How will your house stand? As we listen to the second of Job's friends, a man by the name of Bildad. Job's affliction continues as he engages with his friends. Uh, If you remember Eliphaz, his first friend, was, was quite eloquent in his choice of words that he used with Job. Yet he still clearly felt that, that Job had somehow earned God's judgment. And so he, he tried ever so gently, but nonetheless to show him that he needed to seek God's forgiveness. As I say, we're introduced today to Job's second friend, Bildad the Shuite, another non-Israelite. The Shuites were descended from Abraham and Keturah, Abraham and Keturah. Keturah was one of Abraham's concubines. Uh, You can read about her in Genesis 25 and their descendants. They inhabited the region northeast of the northeastern area of the Arabian uh, Peninsula. And so they were near neighbors. They were cousins of the line of blessing. We see that line descending from Abraham through Isaac, his son, through Jacob, the father of the nations, the tribes of Israel. Surely one of the warnings of this relationally, uh, Bildad the Shuites, their proximity to the line of blessing, one of the warnings of that relationally is that we can be close to those who possess true faith. But this proximity will not ensure soundness in our theology unless we share that true faith. It doesn't matter how close we are to the vine. If we're not of the vine, we won't get it. We will risk making some of the mistakes that we see Bildad making tonight. You see, the concept of grace is missing in Bildad's theology. For him, religion is a simple transaction. Do good and God will bless you. The reality, friends, is that there are many who walk our streets, work in the same offices and live in our neighbouring houses who hold to similar theology, similar ideas about God. It's sufficient simply to be a good person. And then, if we're a good person, if there is a God, he will surely bless us. But as we will see, we need more. We must taste the grace of God. We must first taste grace ourselves in order to be able to show grace to others. Let's read together chapter 8 of Job. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. 
But if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What he trusts in is fragile. What he relies on is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it does not hold. He is like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it's torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. Yet he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. May God bless his word to us this evening. Uh, I've got three W's for you. Firstly, a wind. Secondly, a web, a wind, a web, and finally, the water. A wind, a web, and the water. Firstly, the wind. <clears throat> I don't know if you were staggered when Bildad first opens his mouth. If you consider Job's predicament and what has happened to him and his family, but it's a truly thoughtless thing to say that Bildad utters, considering that Job's children have just been wiped out by a great wind causing the house within which they were gathered to collapse. On top of the great losses Job has experienced, Bildad's words prove to be compounding the problem with friends like Bildad who needs an enemy. To be fair to him, Bildad is correct in many of the things he says. I hope that as I read that chapter, you were thinking, well, there's not a lot wrong with this theology, Pastor Ben. Surely, ultimately, Bildad's correct in God's vindication of the blameless and his punishment of the wicked. Bildad's problem is not that he knows no truth, but the error is in how he handles that truth, how he builds with the truth. You see, Bildad wields the words mercilessly, as if his words should be a help to his friend Job. Because of his underlying theology, which matches Eliphaz's, 
yet Bildad does not share the same eloquence as Eliphaz. Because of this, Bildad is unable to accept that Job could possibly be innocent. And so he asks, If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you. Verse 6. Ultimately, as I've said, we know that this is true. But it may not happen in his lifetime. It may not happen in our lifetime that we are vindicated. It may not be until we have crossed the Jordan, to use that metaphor, that we will know the vindication of God. Bildad wields his words mercilessly. Some people's journey through this life is indescribably hard. Think of those enduring serious physical disabilities, like our brother Joshua, for example. Did they do anything to deserve their affliction? Absolutely not. As Jesus himself said of the blind man in John chapter 9, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And praise God, his glory through Job's life has been preserved for us all to see. There's a world-famous evangelist by the name of Nick Vujicic, who was born with Tetra Amelia Syndrome. Tetra Amelia Syndrome is a condition that results in a person being born without limbs, without arms or legs. Nick has toured the world speaking words of life and encouragement to thousands of people, to the glory of God. Nick would certainly know how to speak a better word to our friend Job. A better word than Job's own friend, Bildad. And so what would Nick say to Job? Or perhaps he might say, I encourage you to accept that you may not be able to see a path right now. But that doesn't mean there is no path. Or perhaps he would say, God's love is so real that he created you to prove it. And friends, God would prove it to Job. Or maybe Nick would say, we can't and we should not compare sufferings. We come together as a family of God, hand in hand, and then together coming and standing upon the promises of God, knowing that no matter who you are, no matter what you are going through, that God knows it. He is with you. He is going to pull you through. What would the Lord have us say to our friends? I think he would certainly want us to exercise more caution than Job. Oh, sorry, than Bildad. And we would be helped to have our theology of suffering sorted out before we go ahead and put our foot in our mouth. We don't want to fall into a trap 
which leads me to the second point, a web. If you're a movie fan here this evening, perhaps you've noticed that Spider-Man's web is super strong. It can prevent a train carriage from plummeting off a destroyed bridge. It can tether any super criminal up until the police arrive. But the kind of web mentioned here by Job's friend Bildad is just a simple garden variety web. The sort of web children sweep away with a casual swipe of the hand. Foolish men put their hopes in things as fragile as a spider's web. In the false assurances offered by this world, claims of no God behind the amazing panorama of creation that we see all around us. To casually accept such ideas is to fall into a great trap, much more deadly than a spider's web to a winged insect. Yet the irony here in the text is that Bildad, a man so confident in his faith, is speaking so bluntly and judgmentally to Job. Job's friend is literally lecturing him in morality and accusing him of godlessness. I've got a plague of coughing going on this evening. <laughs> God bless you. Bildad uses a number of obvious illustrations from the natural world, such as plants needing water to survive, truths which are designed to demonstrate the futility of resisting and rebelling against God. If such a simple theology were true, if Job were indeed deserving of the wrath of God, then okay. But Bildad's words are simply heaping more and more pain onto Job. As Job's friend, he should be more aware of Job's sincere piety and devotion to God and to realise that, though it may be inexplicable, something else is happening in Job's misfortune. Bildad obviously considers Job as an arrogant rebel against God, especially after hearing Job's protests and his troubling comments about desiring death and feeling abandoned. For Bildad, Job is the one caught in a web of his own unbelief, the web of God's judgment. But the reality is that Bildad is himself caught in a web of false theology. False theology which has no room for grace. For Bildad, the Lord only has mercy when people deserve it. But the reality is, friends, that nobody deserves God's grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Not only does Bildad exhort Job to repentance, which is no bad thing when appropriate, Bildad believes that good works are the grounds for God's favour. You know, the religious establishment in Jesus' day fell into a similar trap. 
they exalted their own religious heritage. They reveled in the fact that they were inheritors of the temple in Jerusalem. They were the Jews, the favoured people of God. Time and time again, however, Jesus called upon these teachers of the law and the Pharisees to humble themselves and to recognise him, to hear the words he had to say. The very word of God had made it possible to see that the Messiah would come to atone for the sins of his people and for all the gathered people of God from among the nations. In chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells the famous parable of the tenants. The tenants, not the talents. You know, the tenants of the vineyard who mismanaged it and rejected every representative the vineyard owner sent to them. Until eventually they also killed the owner's son. The one whom the owner had thought would surely find a respectful welcome. Friends, it it doesn't matter how well constructed our house is, how exemplary our lives have been. Even if we've built it with a foundation and used bricks and mortar, if the cornerstone is not Christ, if Jesus is not the one credited with keeping it all together, then the building work will all have just been a great vanity project. We must check ourselves and acknowledge the grace we have needed and the grace that we still need for every failure and every mistake. May the good Lord help us not fall into the trap of self-sufficiency nor of judging our brothers or sisters, especially when we have no idea what has happened to them. We need to take a long slug from the fountainhead. We need to take that refreshing water that comes from God alone. What we need when the torrent of water rises and threatens to sweep our homes and everything else away is to have a solid foundation. Because even in great loss, when the storms of life come, as they inevitably do, we will be found, perhaps only after a season of great anguish and confusion, but we will be found, friends, rejoicing. Because the Lord God Almighty has finally been pleased to make a miracle of perseverance in our lives. Did you know that's what he's doing? If you're going through troubles and tribulations. He's making a miracle of perseverance. Just like with Job's life. He's showing the powers and authorities. He's showing the naysayers and the faithless what a life of faith looks like. What he can do with the redeemed. Something else Nick Vujicic said is, I believe that if God doesn't give you a miracle, in other words, if he doesn't answer your specific prayer, then you are a miracle for someone else's salvation. 
If God doesn't give you a miracle, then you are a miracle for someone else's salvation. Do you get that? Our suffering is not pointless, dear friend. We look at this world with its 8 billion people with problems multiplied again and again and again. We think we're the only people with the problems we've got. Try spending some time in the Ukraine or North Korea or Nigeria or some other parts of the world where they don't have the multitude of blessings that we have. Dear friend, do you know who is watching you and your circumstances? For sure, God is watching you. He knows what it is you're dealing with and how excruciating it is at times. He will certainly take every stress, strain, hurt and loss into consideration when he weighs us at the end of time. What is he asking us to do? with our circumstances. Who else is watching who the Lord wants to demonstrate his grace to through your life? Who else is watching you right now? The Lord says, trust me, through all the varied circumstances of life, through the storms, through the pain, through the frustrations and the bitterness, Don't choose bitter, choose better. That's another of Nick's sayings. Perhaps Job could have done with gently hearing this rebuke. Gently hearing this rebuke. Don't choose bitter, choose better. God is for you. God has you. He has your loved one. He has grace sufficient for you. A good friend of mine who has been immensely supportive through our training and entering ministry, through our loss of Eleanor, and as Yoko joined the family, his father has had a recurrence of cancer. In fact, My friend's family has had its fair dose of cancer with his sister also suffering a bout of cancer. Um, Thankfully, she is now cured, but his father uh, is seriously ill with a recurrence of his bowel cancer, which has now spread to his bones. Unfortunately, the medical services have been slow to pick up on it through the usual treatment routes. And this has resulted in significant suffering for my friend's father. Consequently, for them also. What should they do? What should they do? Should they feed their bitterness and launch complaints and malpractice suits? Or should they look at the lives they've had? Should they rejoice as a family for the salvation that they each know? giving glory to the God who has saved them. Saved them from non-Christian backgrounds, knowing that their hope is in him alone and that their lives are a testimony to that grace. Friends, if we have drunk deeply 
from the stream the Lord supplies. You know that spring we were reminded of this morning of which the Lord himself is the fountainhead. If we have tasted of that stream, then we will no longer be thirsty. We need know that we only need to take another refreshing gulp from that stream for him to help us to continue the valiant struggle of faith. That he will once again empower the engine of endurance within us. Bildad's theology understands that we can be upright before the Lord. That we need simply to be pious and repentant enough to receive what we deserve from God. The Bible makes it clear that there is only one blameless man. The Son of God who died for us. It's only by the abundant grace made available through his sacrifice that such stumbling sinners as us can find refuge and peace for our souls. May the living God, the one who is merciful, despite knowing everything about us, may he reveal to us the grace and love of the blameless one, through whom we can be healed and become a help to others on life's journey a help that they might know it too friends if Christ is the cornerstone of our house and of our theology then our house will stand whatever the weather and whatever trials may come he is our hope in life and in death let's bow our heads in prayer